0: COVID-19 has infected record numbers. At the time of this recording, more people are sick than at any point yet in the pandemic. Overwhelmed
1: by the virus, many states are even scaling back contact tracing, admitting defeat. In the U.S., it feels like there's no end in sight.
2: COVID-19 coronavirus now is a pre-existing condition for Millions of Americans. And if we don't maintain protection for people with pre existing conditions, the implications for the future of health insurance in this country are really up in the air. Will a new
1: administration and the new Congress mean any changes for the American healthcare system?
3: You know, healthcare doesn't get fixed with like one big reform. There's a lot of different incremental reforms that you could look to.
4: But we're in this period where even those uncontroversial technical fixes seem beyond bipartisan agreement. What does the future look like for health insurance?
1: This is The Pie. Economists are always talking about the pie, how it grows and shrinks, how it's sliced, who gets the biggest share. In this show, we'll talk about the most pressing matters of today.
0: In this episode, we're going to look at the uncertain future of health insurance, where we're headed, and what's at stake. I'm Tess Viglund. And I'm Eduardo
1: Porter. We've been invited to have this series of conversations with University of Chicago scholars and other experts. The Pie is a production of the University of Chicago's Becker Friedman Institute and WBEZ Chicago.
0: When I sat down to talk to Catherine Baker, who's Dean of the Harris School of Policy and a health economist, and Matt Notoadigdo, a professor at Chicago Booth who specializes in health and labor economics, I was in the throes of enrolling in health insurance. Well, Matt and Kate, this is a a time of year that can be really stressful for a lot of people. I hope you're both getting through it okay? Yeah, so far so good.
4: I have a friend who always answers that question, COVID fine. COVID fine. All right. Well, perhaps
0: I should explain that I was actually talking about open enrollment season. (laughs) We
3: just had our deadline, yeah, at the University of Chicago. We just finished that up a couple days ago.
0: And you've both got your plans all set? All set. Yeah, interestingly, I was on a
3: really long email thread with my colleague Dick Thaler about what was the right plan to suggest, and a couple other faculty got roped into it. And I actually stopped paying attention after about 10 or 12 emails because they did not reach <laughs> an agreement about which was the best plan.
0: Wait a minute. So you're telling me that a group of economists have trouble figuring out what health plan to get.
3: Yeah. And part of the debate was whether one of the plans financially dominated another one. So it wasn't even about, you know, the network or which doctors you'd be able to see. It was just about the financial aspect of it.
4: The easy answer is, I think I figured this out last year, so I'm just going to do the same thing again, (laughs) (laughs) which often works out okay. But sometimes things change, and who can be bothered to go through all that effort every year to try to figure it out?
0: I I just love that I've got two really well-read, well-educated economists who can't figure this out just like I can't. Okay, maybe I won't ask for their advice, but I did ask them to give me some context. I wonder if each of you could speak to the issue of complexity in our health insurance system and kind of look out to the future and see if this is ever going to get better. You know, we complain every year about how long it takes to do taxes in this country. I feel like it takes at least as long to sift through open enrollment each year. And there's this huge lack of transparency about what we're getting when we choose a plan. And it's almost impossible to get an insurance company to tell you exactly what you're going to pay for any given treatment or visit. What has to happen to fix that on the front end?
3: You know, I, I think that w- one of the things that pandemic has done is it's forced the healthcare system to experiment a little bit in in real time. I'll steal a phrase I heard from the state of South Carolina Medicaid program was they're, they're like building a plane while they're flying it with respect to telemedicine. So one thing they did is is they pivoted really quickly to allowing insurers to reimburse providers for telemedicine visits. So you know, being able to like talk to your doctor on your iPad or on your phone and, and 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 I think what what states are doing is like they're experimenting with what kinds of services can they deliver online and then also trying to make the consumer experience more online. People talk a lot about working from home, but you know, we might also be consuming from home for a while and I think that healthcare system might try to figure out ways of doing that efficiently as a consequence of this pandemic, but then it might stick with us for quite a while.
4: And I think the front-end consumer patient-facing parts of the system have to get friendlier to people trying to navigate. And I think at the same time, we could be doing a more sophisticated job on the back end of tailoring what we pay providers to the value of care that they're delivering, not just the quantity of care, mm. to targeting resources to the patients where it's going to be most beneficial to their health. There's a lot of resistance to adding complexity to the system. Understandably, like it's hard to say that the problem with our healthcare system is that it's too simple. Right. <laughs> but in some ways, the way we're paying is really crude. The co-payments that. Patients face the payments that we make to doctors. There are lots of opportunities to focus the treatments that we deliver and the way we pay for it in a way that drives down low value, expensive care and drives up the use of care that actually improves people's health the most. And we now have the kind of analytical systems and data management systems where all of that could be seamless to the doctor ordering care and to the patient trying to figure out where to go to get care. It could all be internal, but that would require some pretty big changes to our system.
0: I read a piece recently by Rahm Emanuel, who, of course, is the former Obama White House Chief of Staff, former mayor of Chicago, where he argued that the ACA now stands in the pantheon of entitlements along with Medicare and Social Security. And thus will be very hard to ever get rid of, as Republicans have repeatedly said they want to do. Do you agree? Is it a new third rail? And is that a good thing for the economy, if it is?
3: I agree with Rahm Emanuel that this is this is a major transformative piece of legislation. Is it going to be here to stay? I think the ACA is, is definitely here to stay.
4: Kate? I remember at the time the ACA was enacted in 2010, insurance coverage was really going to expand in 2014. And people talked a lot about the fact that once millions of people actually got insurance in 2014, it was then going to be virtually impossible, inconceivable to think about rolling it back. Well, it's clearly not inconceivable. This is something people <laughs> are talking about really actively. But I also think people don't know what's in the law. Mm. When you ask people if they're in favor of protections for people with pre existing conditions, they say yes. If you ask them if they're in favor of subsidizing insurance for low income populations, they say yes. If you ask them if they like Medicare, boy, do they say yes. And there are all of these things that are part of government programs that people say that they're opposed to. So I think there's a, a disconnect between the specific provisions of the law and people's perception of what the law actually did. And I don't know how that plays out.
0: Well, there are two developments on the horizon that really could change the course of health insurance in this country. Uh, One, of course, is the Supreme Court ruling on the Affordable Care Act. Uh, The other is the incoming presidency of Joe Biden, Now, the Supreme Court is not likely to rule before he takes office, so I want to talk about the Biden administration. As a candidate, he ruled out Medicare for all, but he did talk about expanding the ACA in various ways, making plans more affordable, but he also, of course, faces potentially a recalcitrant Republican Senate. So, Kate, let me start with you. What can Biden do with executive authority, if anything? How creative can the administration get?
4: I think there are a lot of incremental changes that could be made via uh, regulation or executive order or just changing the way that existing laws on the books are implemented. It turns out that making it easier for people to enroll in health insurance by streamlining the application process, having Assistors available to help people navigate by advertising in a more powerful way. You can change take-up of insurance, and you can get people enrolled in benefits for which they're eligible. You can also change the way Medicare pays providers through demonstration projects or CMMI, an entity for innovation in payment in Medicare, Biden could change the types of Medicaid waivers that states are allowed to offer, which would give states the opportunity to experiment with the kinds of benefits they give their low-income residents, how they pay providers, how that Medicaid plan integrates with private plans that are available on exchanges. So each of these may be small on its own, but together, I think that they have some opportunity to change the landscape of the healthcare system.
0: So as an economist, uh, if you could wave a magic wand and and have first say on what you'd like the Biden administration to do, what would that be?
4: I think it's of vital importance to get more people covered, both for their own financial protection and health, but also for the health of the insurance ecosystem. The opportunities to expand insurance coverage might top my list, especially in the middle of a pandemic. And I'm putting aside all of the things that I think are incredibly important in managing the pandemic. Let's take that as a given.
0: Yeah, well, Matt, let me ask you the same question then. You know, as an economist, what would you see as an ideal outcome
3: I think I'd echo what Kate said I, you know there's a lot of opportunities for simplifying application processes there's a lot of people eligible for Medicaid that aren't signed up you know I think there's opportunities for figuring out ways of automatically enrolling them even. So I think if I if I could wave a wand, that would that would cover a lot of ground. I mean, these are millions of people that are uninsured but actually eligible for Medicaid and figuring out ways to get them onto Medicaid, I think is a good, that's a good incremental reform that I think even if you had to go through Congress, maybe this is me being uh, hopelessly naive, but I think there could be bipartisan support for automatically em- uh, enrolling eligible people into Medicaid. Mm. You know, healthcare doesn't get fixed with like one big reform. There's a lot of different incremental reforms that you could look to. I, I just learned the other day about the family glitch part of the ACA.
0: Yeah, I just read about that recently, too.
3: I'm a health economist in my day job, but I still had never heard about this before until I talked to domestic workers. I was asking them why they were uninsured. And it's because their husbands have health insurance plans that are affordable for them, but not affordable for the family. And then according to sort of, you know, the peculiarities of the ACA, then they fall through the cracks and end up in this family glitch and end up uninsured. And, you know, that could affect a couple of million households um, that are currently uninsured because they can't find affordable coverage. If you just redefine affordability to be based on the family rather than the individual offered insurance for their employer, then maybe you'd be able to increase take up and get more individuals insured.
4: So Matt, I think that's the first time an economist has ever been uh, accused of being a starry-eyed optimist. (laughs) And I have to say, I'm, I'm not optimistic about legislative action on things like automatic enrollment. I think there are deep divides on whether having more people covered by government-sponsored health insurance is a good thing or not. And I bet that would be a tough one. But some of the technical fixes you mentioned, like the family glitch is a great example. There's another example where the original drafting of the ACA assumed that all states were expanding Medicaid. It was originally constructed as being mandatory. And then the Supreme Court said that it was optional, and some states expanded Medicaid and some didn't. But subsidies for families whose income was a little bit too high for Medicaid eligibility to get insurance on the health insurance exchanges, that starts above Medicaid eligibility. But some families live in states that didn't expand Medicaid, so their income is too low to be able to purchase a subsidized health insurance exchange policy, but too high for their state's Medicaid plans. That's another glitch that wasn't intended in the original drafting. The family glitch, I think, was just not anybody's intention. It was just an inconsistency in the way affordability was defined in a normal era of bipartisan cooperation, this would actually be nonpartisan. This would be technical changes for a massive piece of legislation that are sort of inevitable, if you think about all the changes that have been made to Medicare since its enactment. But we're in this period where even those uncontroversial technical fixes seem beyond bipartisan agreement. And so I am not optimistic about more substantive changes.
0: Well, let's go the other way and assume a not divided government. Of course, all of this kind of pending on the outcome of Georgia Senate runoffs in January. If the Senate does go to Democrats, who would then have the vote with Vice President Kamala Harris on board, And also assuming that they would somehow get rid of the filibuster. I know this is a lot of assumption, but, you know, Joe Biden said he didn't support Medicare for all, but he did say that Americans should have a public option like Medicare. I think Pete Buttigieg called it Medicare for all who want it. How would that potentially change the picture I I remember
3: talking to some of the people working with Mayor Pete when it came to healthcare policy. I I liked that phrase, Medicare for all who who want it as an alternative, maybe less radical reform. I think when you when you go into actually implementing something like that, one question you have to ask is, is it, is it going to be Medicare for all who want it or Medicaid for all who want it? The Medicaid for all who want it option in some states, I think that could look pretty smoothly because unlike Medicare right now, most people on, on Medicaid are on private insurance plans. So it's public health insurance but you sign up for a health insurance plan that is run by a private company that's just reimbursed by the government. Right. Um so going to Medicaid for all who want it would really just look like giving people the opportunity to sign up for insurance plans that are already being offered. To me it always seemed like an easier implementation path. Do you have to figure out which individuals you want to open that up to, but again, a lot of states are basically managing competition between private insurance plans right now and it's just a question of which individuals you allow to sign up.
4: There's an interesting branding issue in some sense. People love their Medicare plans, and people are very skeptical of Medicaid plans. And it's in part that Medicaid often pays providers substantially less than Medicare, so there is more restricted access. Right. But then also, Medicaid is a plan designed for primarily low-income people. And Medicare is a more universal benefit for those over age 65, along with some other populations. And so there's a very different perception of those two plans. But I agree with Matt that a a Medicaid for all is a much, all who want it, (laughs) is a much more viable safety net option to pick up those people who are falling through the cracks now than Something that looks more like Medicare for all, where Medicare is a very generous plan in some ways, in terms of what's covered and and the the benefits that people who are enrolled get, but not very generous in other ways, in terms of what providers are paid. And most people on Medicare need a wraparound plan to cover the payments that Medicare doesn't. And so to have a Medicare plan expanded to a lot more people would actually take a lot of money if you were going to close those gaps in financial protection that a basic Medicare plan offers. yeah, And I think raises the specter of shortages and runaway expenses that makes me a little more concerned than having a safety net Medicaid available to anyone who needed it.
3: I think what I learned from studying the ACA expansion and Medicaid more generally is that, you know, Medicaid doesn't just benefit the low-income individuals that previously were uninsured that now get access to Medicaid. Uh, Medicaid also benefits the providers that previously were providing a lot of care to the uninsured and not getting paid for it. And so to take all of that away, but still require hospitals to provide care to the uninsured, it's a big financial hit. And so, you know, I think that's why, over time, like Medicaid, even though it's, you know, not always the most popular program, it's, it has this built-in support, not just from the Medicaid beneficiaries themselves, but from the hospitals and providers that get paid to treat Medicaid patients who otherwise might have to provide care to the uninsured. That would be very difficult to get paid anything at all.
1: But what's really important now is what all of this means on the ground for patients. After the break, I'll talk to the University of Chicago physician, Dr. Stacy Lindau.
0: We're talking about the future of health insurance, and we just heard from health economists Katherine Baker and Matt Ndotwidigdo. But how do these issues look to healthcare
2: workers? I think about how difficult it is to even carve out minutes in a, in your day when you're not feeling well to get in to see your doctor or get the tests that you need. That alone is a huge barrier to getting help when you need it for your health.
1: Stacey Tesler-Lindau is a tenured professor and practicing physician at the University of Chicago.
2: What I'd like to see as we evolve in terms of making health and healthcare accessible to all people in this country, is minimal burden on the individual who's not feeling well to navigate the healthcare system and maximal focus on ensuring that when somebody is having trouble meeting their wellness goals or starting to feel ill, that they can get the care that they need at the right time in the right place as easily and quickly as possible. Because
1: right now it's actually quite cumbersome, right? Even if you are insured by, say, Medicaid or even private health insurance, there is a huge bureaucratic process that you have to go through. I mean, you're saying that that is an important barrier for people to getting the healthcare they need?
2: Health insurance is confusing. It comes with a massive amount of fine print that nobody could really even have the time uh, to, to read. And if you have the time, you can still have difficulty understanding. I know as a physician, I find it extremely difficult to understand what plans are being offered to me, what are the pros and cons, and what's, how is it going to play out in terms of my overall financial planning for myself and my family. So the bureaucracy around health insurance is a huge barrier for what we really need, which is for all people living in this country to stay as well as they can for as long as possible, And for when people are sick, that they get care as soon as possible. That's how we're going to have affordable care in this country.
1: One thing I I understand is that Medicaid pays hospitals less than Medicare does for a given intervention. And I wonder if that in any way then translates into the quality of the intervention. Like, you know, somebody on Medicaid is going to get lower quality care because of that payment difference.
2: From the point of view of the doctor on the ground taking care of the patient, um, it is not routine in our workflow where we even ask, or there, there's even a report from the, from the residents to say, and this patient has Blue Cross Blue Shield PPO, or and this patient has Medicaid. It's just not part of the conversation. I'm going to provide yeah. the best care I can in the moment. Yeah. But yeah. what I can offer is not always the full range of options. Yeah. And that's where we do hit up against the health insurance problem. And what I feel frustrated about is, like I said, we are paying for everybody's healthcare. We're just doing it in the most wasteful way right now.
1: My kind of initial thought about the insufficiency of our health insurance in the United States when the pandemic came about was oh my gosh we're like the richest country on earth and we happen to be the only rich country that's hitting a public health emergency with nearly 30 million people lacking health insurance that struck me as like insane but
2: and but i wonder what could would be the health consequence of that we entered a massive public health crisis in this nation Bringing forth our American selves, and our American selves function together in a highly inequitable society. So, what we what we don't see is people being turned away from emergency departments who are presenting with coronavirus symptoms, because when when people show to the emergency department, they will get the care they need, especially if the Care that's needed is life-threatening, emergency, and in-hospital care. The challenge we have is that people who have not had access to the healthcare system, people who do not have a regular source of care or health insurance, have a different set of feelings potentially about using healthcare when they get sick compared to people who've been plugged into the system and who know how to navigate it and know who to call. So people may avoid care and show up later in the course of illness where it's harder to intervene in a life-saving way. People may stay at home or go to work with symptoms that then spread to others because they've been out of the loop, perhaps, on um, the information they need to keep themselves and others safe. And then we're starting to see that there are, for some people, long-term consequences, of this virus, you know, if you're lucky enough to live and survive, some people are going to really need ongoing care, and we'll see disparities there as well.
1: That's right. We don't know what the long-term impact of this is going to be. That's crazy.
2: We don't, and the the likelihood that those long-term effects um, interact in a bad way with other chronic illnesses like heart disease and diabetes and pulmi- chronic pulmonary disease, the likelihood is high. Having long-term effects from an infectious disease in combination with those other diseases can't be good. And the people who are most likely to have that constellation of problems are the people who have most likely been outside the health insurance system.
1: So so just as a final thought here, the urgency for us to kind of like bolster our health insurance system and insure all these people that do not have access kind of becomes It's pretty urgent, basically.
2: You know, COVID-19 coronavirus now is a pre-existing condition for millions of Americans who may not have had one before. Mm -hmm. And if we don't maintain protection for people with pre-existing conditions, the implications for the future of health insurance in this country are really up in the air, if you ask me.
0: This is really like what uh, health and labor economist Matt Notewadigdo said about building a plane while flying it. With the pandemic, the health landscape has changed and is changing so fast, but can our health insurance system adapt? The Pie is a production of WBEZ Chicago and the Becker Friedman Institute for Economics at the University of Chicago. This episode was produced by Dana Bialik. We are produced and mixed by Story Mechanics. Our theme and all original music in this series is by Story Mechanics. Our executive producer is Ellen Horn. I'm Tess Vigland. And I'm Eduardo Porter.